and welcome to episode 1337 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. We have a team preview podcast for you today, so shortly we'll be doing an athletic twofer. It's pretty tough to avoid the athletic writers when we're doing the team preview series, not that we're trying to. So today we will be talking to Robert Murray about the Milwaukee Brewers and Fabian Ardaya about the Los Angeles Angels. But we have something to banter about first because there has been some baseball news. Manny Machado has actually picked a team and signed with that team. 10 years, $300 million, San Diego Padres. We have both written about it and dissected it. So where should we begin? Probably with Manny Machado signing with the Padres, I think, (laughs) makes the most sense. Yeah. Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is surprising, right? Uh, it, yep. Now, last year with the Eric Hosmer sweepstakes, that's, I didn't do any going back digging, but from what I can recall, it was always kind of a, a race between the Padres and the Royals, and Eric Hosmer was sold as a premium free agent. He was a pretty good free agent. Sold as a premium free agent, but Eric Hosmer was nowhere close to the level of Manny Machado. Machado was younger and better than Eric Hosmer, which is two good things to be when you're a free agent. And so he signed a contract twice as big, more than twice as big as Hosmer's, and he signed it with San Diego. And I know that the Padres have been in the rumors. I know that they've been involved for a number of weeks. But reading reading a few articles today, it seems like the Padres only came on board to even like sign off on a pursuit of Machado a month ago, middle of January, when reports started coming out that Machado didn't have that active of a market, the Padres thought, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and, and get in there. But at what point do you think that the Padres even thought that they would sign Manny Machado? <laughs> you remember one month ago, we had a podcast about yeah. how the Padres weren't going to spend. They had that entire <laughs> article written about them in the San Diego Union Tribune, where they quote unquote opened their books, and then they talked about how they were going to spend down the line, and it didn't make sense. To do, that, to do that spending quite yet. They were targeting 2020 and 2021. And what we know now is within a few days of after that article was published, or at least when that article was researched, the Padres front office must have gone to ownership and convinced them that actually this was <laughs> worth a pursuit. So Manny Machado signed with the San Diego Padres. We've then, now yeah. done a full circle, but now I'm turning it over to you. Yeah, a lot has changed since that podcast episode. I, I'd imagine that Padres fans are quite a bit happier than they were then. Not just Manny Machado, but bringing back the brown uniforms in 2020. That's big news, too. And yeah, before this news happened, the biggest news of the Padres offseason, besides the brown uniforms, was Garrett Richards signing, who's not even going to be playing this year, and Ian Kinsler, and then suddenly Manny Machado happened. So I think it makes perfect sense obviously from a talent perspective but that doesn't mean that we expected it to happen just because historically speaking i mean as we have both pointed out in various places today the padres did hand out the biggest free agent contract of last offseason as well so this is just becoming a habit with them but that was not nearly as big a contract not nearly as good a player And it's strange to see the Padres outbidding the Phillies, the White Sox, the Yankees apparently never making an offer. I mean, people expected that Manny Machado would go to one of these traditional powerhouse teams, and many of them could have used him, but nope, the Padres got him. And I think we can break down a bit what this means for the Padres, what this means for free agency. Obviously, the Padres have the consensus 
best farm system in baseball now. It's a really impressive crop. It's probably the best system we've seen in recent years. I know Padres have, what, 10 of the top 100, according to MLB.com, and 7 of the top 50. Just looking at the Fangraphs list a moment ago, the Fangraphs top 100 list is actually a top 132 list, but the Padres have 13 of the top 132. So basically the Padres have one out of every 10 great prospects in baseball, and they are not one-tenth of the baseball teams. So they have a disproportionate prospect crop here. And I don't think that they were about to contend this year. They're probably still not about to contend this year with Machado in the fold. But A, they'll be close to respectability, at least. I think Pakoda has them at 79 wins with Machado. And it's really, really easy to see them being a significant contender and a big threat to the Dodgers as soon as 2020 with Machado moving up the timeline as some of their young guys get established. Yeah, I think the idea is always to try to chase down the Dodgers in a year or two. And, and now, mm-hmm. like you said, they're probably still not going to chase down the Dodgers this season, but they're going to be closer. I mean, they, according to the Fangraphs projections, at least before this Padres projected to be the second worst team at third base in Major League Baseball in front of only the Royals. That's not going to be true anymore. They'll be one of the best because Machado is great. And you can see that, you know, maybe Fernando Tatis Jr. can come up and kind of be there. Ronald Acuna, where Manny Machado might be there. Freddie Freeman, whatever you want to say. You want to talk about how the Braves arrived early. The Padres are making a play to try to do the same thing. And what I like about it, they have a, a full squad. In fact, probably they're they're overfull on the position player side. They still have too many outfielders by about five. And yeah. you they have a good bullpen. We've talked about it. They had a good bullpen even after trading Brad Hand and Adam Simber last season. That bullpen is coming back. The starting rotation is wide open. There's Joey Lucchese, who I think is good, and then just a whole bunch of question marks. Lots of talent. And if you were moving forward, I would much rather be hoping for like a sudden group of pitcher development than like sudden hitter development just because we know pitchers can just like develop overnight they can just yeah. one little tweak and all of a sudden somebody go, can go from off the rider to to really really exceptional so the Padres have a lot of pitching coming up to the system they have a lot of pitching already in the majors that Nelson Lamette is coming back this season hopefully in the second half to be healthy not saying the Padres are going to be a really good team but you look at the National League and are the Padres worse than the Reds I don't think that they are they just kind of did what the Reds did but they did it all at once and they did it longer <laughs> term all the, all the improvements that the Reds made or, or tried to make, the Padres just decided, well, we're just going to go spend the biggest free agent contract in the history of professional sports, and we're going to do that <laughs> right now. And this is, you can talk about, I guess, the the state of the free agent market, but Machado got what he was going to, to get, more or less. He got what he wanted mm-hmm. to get. He got to that 300 benchmark. And so the market for Machado ultimately wasn't hurt. I know it took longer than he wanted, but, you know, it worked out. But what, yeah. what guided Machado here is that the Yankees weren't involved in any meaningful way that the Dodgers seemed like they weren't going to be in on Harper which narrowed Harper's market which narrowed Machado's market the Cubs weren't going to be involved with the premium players these these top spending teams weren't going to be involved which led to these weird cold markets for two premium players and so that is what guides those players to a landing spot like San Diego so now I mean we can keep talking about this and we will keep talking about this I guess but the next question that we go to was whither Bryce Harper. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, Machado got about what he was expected to get after all that. 
the average crowdsourced prediction for Machado last year was $273 million. He obviously just beat that, although that estimate was for 8.6 years, so he didn't beat it on the average annual value. But still, that's nice, and I don't think it really changes what we have said and will say about the free agent market. I think that Machado and Harper were kind of always the faces of the free agent market because they were the two most prominent free agents and because they've just been free agents for so long and we've been talking about them for so long. But they were different because they're 26 and they're really good and the average free agent is not in the position that Machado and Harper are. So it would have been another sign of the apocalypse if those guys hadn't signed or hadn't signed for the amount of money that we thought they would sign for. But the fact that they seem to be getting the amount of money that we kind of thought they would. I don't think that necessarily diffuses all the concerns that we've had all winter. I've seen some people tweet or suggest, well, everything's okay now because Manny Machado got his $300 million. And obviously the type of player who has been hurt the most by this new free agency is not the 26-year-old superstar. It's the over 30 average-ish player who's just not getting offers anymore. So that continues to be the case. This doesn't change that. So I just want to point that out. But as for the Padres, I think, I mean, I'm not a Padres fan, but it's like a drool-worthy lineup if you just project a couple years out in the future. They have such prospect riches, and they're a system that's been really good for a while now. This is a, a team that was at the top of organizational rankings last year, too, and a lot of their top prospects are holdovers from last year's top prospect list. So these guys are major league ready. A lot of them are. And so you're going to start to see them this year. You've already started to see them. Mejia was in the majors last year. Rios was in the majors last year. But you can just slot them all in right now and basically build an entire lineup out of really promising players. I mean, just looking forward a, a few years and imagining Machado anchored at third and then Tatis at short and Rios at second and well, Hosmer forever at first, for better or worse, but then you've, as you said, got so many outfielders, whether it's Myers and Cordero and Renfro and Franmil Reyes and Mejia, whether he's a catcher or a corner guy and Hedges. I mean, it's just an entire team lineup that is basically said and Nothing is guaranteed. The Padres have seen many Margot go from being one of the best prospects in baseball to a bench player seemingly for now, although obviously still has some promise. But I mean, even if not all of these guys work out as well as people hope they will, this is going to be a pretty potent and entertaining offensive team. And because there seems to be such a surplus on the position player side, you can imagine that some of these guys could be moved for pitching help at some point. What tickles me is that looking at the way that the Padres line up now, the position where they might be the worst is first base yeah. <laughs> with Eric Hosmer <laughs> and his $144 million contract. So I guess, yeah, you look at the Padres, it is exciting. I mean, we haven't even haven't said the words Franchi Cordero very often yeah. lately. He missed most of last season for injury and, you know, not a finished product, but having Franchi Cordero out there just coming back, this is such a fun full outfield that i mean yeah. this team badly needs to it seems like to find a way to trade will myers away which they've been trying to do they have thus far been unsuccessful that contract now looks like an albatross but credit to the padres because 
they signed Myers to a, a big extension. They signed Eric Hosmer to a to a big contract. Those haven't worked out exactly like they were hoping they would in the early going, but they still were willing to invest this money in Manny Machado when it would have been easy for them to say, and in fact was easy for them to say not too long ago, that now is not the time. But I, I will say, before we move on to, I guess, Harper, that I wonder... If when when we see moves like this that go down, just moves that have that involve impossible sums for for really good players, and they just they contracts for terms for a decade or or more, what you are generally going to see written, and I know this is certainly how I wrote. This is I think what the average. I, I haven't seen a take out there that says well, the Padres made just a made a huge mistake in signing Manny Machado, mm-hmm. even though there is a very real chance. The Padres just made a huge mistake in, in signing Manny Machado, and we'll talk about the Phillies in a minute because, you know, the Phillies were involved in, in Machado. Uh, $300 million exceeded their evaluation of the value of the player. The Phillies have a lot more resources to spend than than the Padres do. And and so now for, for the year 2020, 2021, and 2022, as of right now, the way things are lined up, the Padres are going to be spending more than $70 million combined each season on Hosmer, Myers, and Machado. And that's certainly nothing that they can't navigate around. They have a lot of young talent coming, young, cheap talent, and the owners can invest more money to make sure that they can always add the next piece. But there are there's very real risk that the Padres could end up hamstrung by their limited flexibility. Now, I don't think that's going to be Machado's fault because he is better than Myers. He's better than Hosmer. But it's mm-hmm. still something to keep in mind down the road because if Myers and Hosmer are not very valuable players, then the Padres are going to have to do a lot with a little of limited flexibility with the rest of the payroll. But in any case, still, this is more of a good day than a bad. I just wonder when these things happen, if the media response one's inclined to see is is really the most objective and, and accurate. Yeah, it seemed like the Padres wanted Hosmer last year to be kind of their Jason Worth contract where they would show that they were willing to spend and maybe other people would sign there and he would be a bridge from bad teams to good teams. And Hosmer was just miscast in that role because he's not that good a player even compared to Jason Wirth. I mean, Hosmer was a replacement level player last year. The Padres won five fewer games with him than they had won without him the year before. Machado is that type of player. He is obviously a superstar and the Padres are a year closer to being good regardless. So this is the kind of destination where you can understand why the Machado picked the Padres. A, they offered him the most guaranteed money, which is always a good reason. B, San Diego's a nice place. You're from there. You know that. But also, he gets to kind of get in on the ground floor and be the face of this up-and-coming franchise. And it just seems like a, a really nice situation away from the major media markets. Obviously, San Diego is actually one of the most populous markets, but also one of the smallest media markets in the majors. But they will soon have a, a reason to convince their fans to watch the team. And and that was something that I dwelt on in my article was just how nondescript and anonymous and just bland the Padres have been throughout most of their history. They have been bad. They have the Mm -hmm. worst all-time winning percentage of any franchise in the modern era. So they've been bad, but they haven't had like the lovable losers tag or they just are kind of bad in this extremely boring way. And we talked about it on our Padres episode, but I mean, they've made the playoffs five times in 50 seasons. The Dodgers have won six division titles in a row. It's just ridiculous when you compare. And it's not just that they haven't won, but they've done it with so little star power. And that's something that stands out to me and that I wrote about in my article. Like just last year, 
According to Baseball Reference, Machado was worth 5.7 wins above replacement. Fangrass actually had him a little bit higher, but take 5.7. So Machado has had four seasons like that in his short career, which is only six full seasons. In the past 20 seasons, the Padres have had that number of 5.7 war seasons. So Machado has accomplished in his short career what Padres position players have accomplished basically collectively in two decades. And in their entire history, the Padres have only had one hitter who has had multiple six war seasons, Tony Gwynn. That's it. They just have had so few stars. Like we've talked about Nate Colbert as their there it all-time is. franchise. There Got to mention Nate Colbert in any Padres conversation, but maybe you won't have to forever because Manny Machado is there for 10 years or at least five years when he'll have an option to opt out. But by that point, who knows? Maybe he won't want to because the Padres will be really good. So I had a a table in my article where I, I just looked at like six war seasons per franchise, just going back somewhat arbitrarily to 1997, which is the year after the Padres had the the Ken Caminiti outlier steroid-fueled MVP season. So since that year, lumping together all hitters and pitchers, like the Red Sox have had 33 six-plus war seasons. The Cardinals have had 27. The Padres have had six, and only the Pirates have had fewer. The Pirates have had five six-plus war seasons. No team has had fewer of those seasons by hitters. So it's just been such a bland group for so long, and Machado just instantly changes that. He is just a a superstar at his peak, and he should be good for years to come. He fits in perfectly with this roster. Dodgers don't have to be shaky in their boots immediately. I think the Dodgers have come in for a lot of criticism this winter because they seem to not really have upgraded. They've made some subtractions. They've made some sort of lateral additions like trading Puig and signing Pollock, that sort of thing. And people have been wondering, why don't they sign Harper, et cetera? They still could, I suppose. But you kind of understand why they haven't made that big move because you look at the depth charts and the fan projections and there's 12 wins between the Dodgers and the next best team in that division. I mean, they have spent in the past, but for me, it's kind of hard to criticize what they've done because they've won six straight division titles. They've won back-to-back pennants. They have been the biggest spenders in baseball when they've had to be, but right now, no one is pushing them, and no one probably will this year, but the Padres have this foundation, at least, where you can imagine them mounting a long-term threat as early as 2020 and and for some time to come. So I think it's good that they will have a real rival there, and and I think it's good that it's the Padres because, yeah, it's nice when superstars go to high-profile teams, but like we already have the good Dodgers, the good Yankees, the good Red Sox. Like We don't need Machado going to one of those teams. Spread the wealth around. Send him to the Padres, who need a player like Machado more than any franchise has ever needed one. So I think it's a, a good development for baseball. And maybe with Manny Machado in San Diego for up to 10 years, we might finally, in a decade or so, have reason to stop saying Nate Colbert's yes, name all exactly. of the time, who might be the most... <laughs> Anonymous, unknown player who also constantly just (laughs) deserves obligatory mentions in any conversation about the Padres. Still don't know anything about the man. Now, Jeff Passan (laughs) had a tweet earlier that was a talk to mention something that you also mentioned that, uh, according to Passan, San Diego is the most populous one-team metropolitan area in the United States with 3.3 million people and a second in North America to Montreal. 
He says the hope for the Padres is that they can turn into what the Spurs are for San Antonio and the Blazers for Portland, a hallmark of the city. Now, as a resident of Portland, I can say that Portland cares, I think, at least as much, if not more, about the Timbers, but that's a, a different story. San Diego <laughs> is a gigantic place with a lot of people who have money to spend and only one sport to spend it on because we're not going to talk about whatever it is, that weird football team that they put in San Diego. I learned today there's another football league. Did you know that? It started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. Attendance seems to be dwindling. Anyway, <laughs> Padres have a lot of people at their disposal. And this is going to be one of those fun kind of like West Coast tests, I guess, of... Uh, you know, the conversation that you always get into about why people don't go to games in Miami and Tampa Bay is that they're mm-hmm. just, you know, they're all from somewhere else and they all want to go do something else. They want to go enjoy the beaches or whatever. And this will be a, a fun test on the opposite side of the country of, well, a lot of people in San Diego aren't from San Diego. A lot of people who have other things that they want to do, but if they want to go watch a sport, this is the one. And Machado, like you said, it brings star power that they haven't had in forever. Jake Peavy didn't count. Adrian Gonzalez sort of counted local kid made good but Mm -hmm. you know he made every effort to avoid the spotlight whenever he could so anyway it's just exciting it's exciting for people i know in san diego it's exciting for san diego this is a this is a fun time this is a fun time (laughs) for them and so we move on close this part by talking about bryce harper i suppose because one of the reasons that this all dragged out this is manny machado represented by dan lozano Bryce Harper represented by Scott Boris. Those two agents don't care for one another, and neither one of them wanted to be first to sign because then there would be more leverage for the other guy. Now, Machado seems to have done just fine. Him and Lozano got their $300 million. This seems to push Bryce Harper to Philadelphia. Does it not? It doesn't seem like there is a whole lot of other market, at least not in the public. The Giants, I guess, have been somewhat involved. The White Sox have been involved. There could be mystery teams, but this gets interesting. Because on the one hand, now Scott Boris has a lot of leverage because the Phillies kind of, at least according to their their fans, need Bryce Harper. Like a lot of people are going to be disappointed if the Phillies don't get Bryce Harper because they were so perfectly lined up for so long to spend big this offseason. But Mm -hmm. Scott Boris is going to do everything in his goddamn power to make sure Bryce Harper gets more than $300 million. But let's talk about that. Yeah. There was a lot of tweeting, a lot of reports from people who I don't find to be reputable earlier this week saying that Harper is going to sign and he's going to get more than $300 million. He's going to get more than Giancarlo San. And you know what? Maybe he will. Maybe he will ultimately get that. But if you look at where the Phillies are, not only might they be in a position where they're bidding against themselves, but I was reading a Matt Gelb article that he put up at the, <laughs> you guessed it, Athletic <laughs> earlier today after Machado signed to the Phillies. And he got some quotes from Phillies GM Matt Klintak and... Kledek saying, uh, well, we had a pretty good idea of where this thing was going, referring to Machado going to the Padres. And he said, if the reports are true, those are reports about the $300 million, then this contract will exceed our valuation, Kledek said. Sometimes you have to be willing to walk away. So the Phillies, according to themselves, didn't value Manny Machado at $300 million over 10 years. Now, according to recent history, according to whatever projection system you want to look at, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper are the same. Steamer (laughs) thinks Machado's maybe a tiny bit better. Harper, I think, is maybe a more reliable hitter. Machado, more reliable defender, etc. Same age. It's hard for me to think that the Phillies would have Harper at a $300 million valuation. Mm -hmm. So what will be interesting to see is how long it takes until an agreement can be reached. It does still feel like it's Phillies more likely than not. But is Scott Boris going to cave? Is Harper going to cave? Are they going to go for a shorter-term contract? What is going to happen here? Because the Phillies 
have lost some leverage, but it doesn't seem like they've lost that much. Yeah, I, I get the sense that maybe your typical baseball fan would expect that Harper is better than Machado or would make more than Machado. And obviously now that Machado has signed and there is the 300, Harper can try to best that or use that as leverage of some sort or or a goal to beat. And and Boris certainly will try to do that. But putting all that aside, would you prefer to have Harper than Machado? Would you prefer to pay Harper more than you would pay Machado? Because I just don't see any reason why I would. I, I think There's a perception that Harper has a higher ceiling, which I understand because obviously he was the wonderkind and he was the guy on Sports Illustrated's cover when he was 16 and he was way ahead of his competition and he came up and was great. And of course, he has the MVP season. But for him, the MVP season is sort of an outlier year, whereas Machado doesn't have the MVP season, but he has been in the top 10 in MVP voting in three of his six full seasons and would be four if not for the midseason trade last year. So he's been a, a more consistent MVP caliber player than Harper has. And you can even kind of caveat and asterisk Harper's MVP year because as you wrote, as Rob Arthur wrote, He kind of got lucky that year, at least it seemed like his outcomes were better than you would expect based on how he was hitting the ball. And that's what the whole argument for Harper being better really rests on. So at this point, given his inconsistency, would you want to commit to Harper for more than you would commit to Machado? And and will there be a team that wants to do that? Because personally, I would have a hard time with that. I would too. I would too. And so it's going to be fun to see because I I think that on the one hand, you would think after Machado signs, then, okay, Harper's going to be getting impatient. He's going to want to be in somebody's camp. He's going to want to sign a contract any day now. You'd think this would happen fast, but this is maybe a situation where Harper's choice of agent works against his own urgency. Now, I don't actually know how urgent he is. Maybe he thinks he'll be fine. I'm sure he's doing his workouts. Bryce Harper will hit. He'll be okay. But it's going to be... Uh, A really interesting test of, I guess, pride, because players and agents look to contract sums as as points of pride. And of course, if if you're Bryce Harper, you look at Manny Machado and think, well, I am at least as good as that guy. I should get at least as much as that guy. Imagine if you're looking for any kind of job, you look for a comparable to yourself and say, well, he's, if he's getting paid $100,000, I'm going to get paid $100,000. Or I should say in Bryce Harper's terms, $300 million. I'm sorry, I slipped into speaking like a regular person for a minute there. <laughs> so given that, you, one is inclined to, to maybe be stubborn and hold out, but I don't know what you would be holding out for. Now, of course, I'm saying this is somebody who just watched the San Diego Padres come up with $300 million for Manny Machado. So you never know who's going to come out of the woodworks, but like the Padres got involved a month ago. They put in a month of work. AJ Preller just flew to meet with Lozano and I think Machado over the weekend. So we have seen things happening there, but do you think that, I don't think that Farhan Zaidi is likely to be the guy who gives Bryce Harper $300 million. Zaidi has said himself, he's not going to do that. Cubs don't seem in. Tadras don't seem in. It's Phillies and maybe the Nationals. But the Nationals yeah. themselves have implied that they're out. So this is, I. it seems like the, the best way out here for Harper and for Boris is that they, they frighten Nationals ownership into thinking, oh, we just can't let him go to the Phillies after all. And then they go mm-hmm. in there matching or maybe slightly exceeding the offer that they made at the end of the season, which was $300 million. You know Boris right. wants $301 million. But other than that, it seems like if you're the Phillies, if you think that the Nationals are out, then you just say, well, okay. Take it or leave it. Right. There's been so much reporting about 
offers made or not made to both of these guys just because their free agencies have lasted so long. So there was the report you referenced about $300 million being offered and rejected even before Harper officially became a free agent. And then there was a subsequent report that the Nationals had upped that offer. I don't know whether that was reliable, but... He's had offers in this neighborhood and seems to have had the opportunity to take them and didn't. But now that Machado has signed for that amount, you'd think that Harper would sign for some small amount more than that. But there aren't that many options out there, or at least there don't seem to be that many serious suitors. And to go back to Machado for a minute, you kind of feel for the White Sox, who really seemed to want Manny Machado to the extent that they were acquiring Manny Machado's friends and family. And now they're stuck with Yonder Alonso and John Jay, who I guess are perfectly nice fellows. And But I just, uh, uh, they did not get the prize. And uh, I mean, they could have offered 300 and evidently they weren't willing or able to go that high. So they just got his friends and family instead. So that's not the outcome they were hoping for. And Yeah, I don't know. It will, of course, be fascinating to see where Harper ends up. You'd think it wouldn't take too much longer. And as Matt Gelb was saying on our Phillies preview podcast last week, Phillies have been extremely active. And in almost any other offseason, I think fans would be pretty pleased with the amount of talent they've added. But because of the comment about spending stupid money and because of the expectations that they would sign Harper Machado, No one's going to be happy if they don't sign one of those guys, and I'm sure that John Middleton will regret saying something about stupid money if he is not able to sign Harper now. And there's always a risk because you can't guarantee that you will sign a certain free agent unless you absolutely blow all the other teams out of the water. You can't really predict who's going to offer what or the Padres coming along and offering $300 million, and you can't account for the player's taste and where he might actually prefer to play. So... That's a a risky thing to say, and I don't know, maybe if the Phillies don't end up with Machado or Harper, maybe their offseason will be misrepresented in a way because they have done a whole lot, but obviously they will be pretty motivated to sign Harper here, and I will be curious to see whether he actually ends up getting significantly more than Machado because it just doesn't seem like something that their performance records would support. The White Sox apparently made Machado a $250 million offer that had a bunch of options and incentives that could take it up to $350 million, and I wonder if they could have that kind of outlay for Machado. There's no reason that they wouldn't offer that to Harper. Now, I don't know if Harper wants to play for the White Sox, but I don't know what Harper wants to do, so I'll put you on the spot now. What guaranteed amount of money do you think Bryce Harper signs for? (laughs) I'll I'll say he gets 326. I'll say that he beats the Stanton contract. I don't know why he would or should, if at least relative to Machado getting 300. But I don't know. I guess I'll uh, put my faith in in Boris pulling one out of the hat here. Ugh, okay, then I won't. 260. <laughs> I'm going to say 260 for Bryce Harper. Really? Yeah, and right. and uh, and Boris is going to dress it up in some kind of way. I haven't <laughs> thought this all the way through. He'll dress it up in a way that he can point to and say he's actually going to do better than Machado, etc. Maybe bunch of like vesting increases if Harper wins the MVP you know those kinds of things that the team would be happy to pay if the if the player is yeah. great but maybe it'll be a swell opt maybe it'll you know what it's been <laughs> it's been so long since I thought about the swell opt I almost forgot about the word but you brought it right back so thanks a lot I think it's time to move on to our guests <laughs> all right so we will take a quick break and we'll be back with Fabian Ardaya to talk about the Angels and Robert Murray to talk about the Brewers I see angels in the snow 
Alright, so we are joined now by Fabian Ardaya. He covers the Dodgers and the Angels for the Athletic Los Angeles and the Athletic MLB, but we brought him here specifically to talk about the Angels today. Hey Fabian, how are you? I'm good, how are you guys doing? We're doing well, so we'll get into some deep cuts. We'll talk about a lot of other players on this roster, but we should probably start with a couple of the patron saints of this podcast. I know Jeff has a a few trout questions ready to go, so I will start with Otani, who is more of of a question, I guess, than Trout is. Give us the latest on the rehab and when we might actually see Otani and whether there's every expectation that he will be the same guy offensively that he was last year. I think when you guys see Otani at the same time, I'm going to see him because he's pretty much at this point been just basically working out. Uh, he's shown up a couple times, tracked bullpens, and he's done some dry swings hidden back in the outfield at Tempe Diablo Stadium. That's pretty much all he's been doing so far. It's a weird rehab for him because obviously being a hitter and a pitcher it's going to be a lot different of a Tommy John rehab than really has ever been done before but basically they've said that it's whether it's hitting or it's pitching it's going to be one milestone per week so if he starts hitting off a tee next week which he hopes to do then he wouldn't be able to theoretically do any sort of pitching over that time at least not taking a new milestone. So it's sort of been a slow process for Shoyotani. I know they're kind of slow playing it a little bit by sort of saying already he won't be there till May, but um, we'll see how fast he can rehab. I know he wants to sort of plan like he's going to be ready for opening day, but he's not going to be available at all during spring training. So it's it's a slow go for him. When Ben and I would talk through the course of last year and, and even the year before, we would try to forecast with the end of the Albert Pujols era in Anaheim, what it looks like, when it might come. And, you know, for as long as Shohei Otani is unavailable to serve as the regular designated hitter, the Angels don't have a problem. They've got Justin Bohr, they've got Albert Pujols, they've got first base and DH to play him. But, you know, at a certain point, Shohei Otani comes back and with a roster is not yet expanded, it's still 25 men on the active roster. And Bohr, Pujols, Otani, those are three players with pretty much no defensive flexibility. So while I'm sure this is a question you've gotten a million times already, what happens when Otani comes back? And what is your sense right now of Albert Pujols' future with this ball club? I think it's still sort of to be seen, like what they're going to do. I think they're sort of, first of all, they're trying to see when Otani could be back. If he is back in May, then I guess they want to take that first month of April to see what Albert Pujols still has in the tank and how much first base he could potentially play, because he's not going to be playing DH when Otani's in the lineup. So it's sort of, they want to see how much Pujols has left in the tank, if Justin Bohr is productive. And I think what ultimately might wind up happening is, Shohei Otani, I think, hit well enough, especially down the stretch last season, even against lefties, to sort of warrant getting every day at bat to designate a hitter. And he is probably their second best hitter, so he should be in the lineup. And Justin Bohr has shown he can be a capable hitter, especially against right-handed pitching. But if they need to have a way to have pools of that in the lineup, I hate to say it for a player of the caliber, like the sort of the production of Albert Pools over his career, but he, he might have to be a platoon player and face left-handed pitching, which I don't know if Albert would be necessarily okay with. Even though Bohr's on a one-year deal, this doesn't seem like it'll be a one-year issue for Albert. Jeff, I don't want to get in the way of any trout questions that are in your chamber. So just, All right. <laughs> just why don't I pull just it take out there. it from here? Yeah. All right. So so Fabian, regarding uh Mike Trout, have you seen his stats? <laughs> yes, he is he's quite good at baseball. 
He's unbelievably, I'm looking at him again. It's been a while. It's been honestly longer than it usually takes for me to, between visits to his player page. And I mean, holy shit, 26 years old through last year. Amazing. Anyway, you, uh, you go to spring training and from the top of the roster to the bottom, every single player is showing up to camp saying, here is the thing I want to work on. Here's what I spent the offseason doing. Here is et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is it that Mike Trout is indicating that he wants to improve at in 2019? That's the thing. He sort of has always said that, like that he's always coming to spring with one thing he's wanted to work on. And the last year he said he wanted to win a gold glove and he had his best defensive season in years and had a pretty good case to possibly win a gold glove last year. Uh, but this year he just said consistency, which is really all he's ever been in baseball. <laughs> he, he's been pretty much a top-of-the-league war player every single year he's been in baseball, but I guess his form of consistency now is maybe being able to maintain those hot starts over the whole season. And I guess the only thing that's really interrupted that over the last couple of years has been injuries, and he's been pretty healthy over the first few years of his career up until the last couple. So I think maybe that's the big thing stopping him from really just owning all of baseball is playing all 162 games or being able to at least stay healthy over the course of a full season. Yeah, be indestructible. That's a good goal for Mike Trout this year. So given where Trout is at this point, whenever the Angels are conducting their offseason, they spent this offseason loading up again on on short-term improvements, trying to, seems like, give the Astros a little push, maybe challenge for the American League wildcard, and the Angels want to stay in the race while they have Mike Trout under contract. So again, we're just coming back to all the obvious questions, but Trout's got two years left on the contract extension he signed with the Angels a little while back. Obviously, with Manny Machado on the free agent market, or I guess at least until today, and Bryce Harper on the free agent market, we've been seeing a lot of talk about current free agents, upcoming free agents. Mike Trout recently has been connected to the Phillies like he always is. Is there anything to report? Are there any developments at all, given that this is extension season for teams? Is there any traction to another contract extension between the Angels and Trout? Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, said yesterday that they had internal discussions about a potential Mike Trout extension, but they have not really had any communication with Trout or his agent yet, which is probably an indicator that it wouldn't happen this spring. And I mean, obviously, players don't typically sign extensions during the course of a season, so it seems like it's going to be an awkward year of, all right, at the end of the season, are they going to offer him an extension? Odds are that they will, and it's just a matter of if that offer is enough for Mike Trout, I think you'll probably have to see what uh, probably what a Mookie Betts extension would look like, what a Nolan Arenado extension would look like, based those off of what Harper and Machado get this wave of offseason free agency. But uh, Trout's probably going to have to command even more than that, and it's a matter of whether or not the Angels are willing to pay that, or if Mike Trout wants to stay with the Angels. I think he hasn't really indicated any way to whether he prefers to stay, whether he prefers to leave. Uh, he sort of said that he likes being an angel, but he also clarified he wants to win. And of course, they have only been to three playoff games with Mike Trout. They have not won a single one. So one problem for the Angels has been keeping pitchers healthy. And uh, that was obviously something that Shohei Otani ran into and many others over the past few years. 
Has there been any discussion? I, I guess the, the question shouldn't be, have the Angels figured out how to prevent pitcher injuries? Because that would be big news, and also we probably wouldn't know about it. But do you know if there's anything going on in terms of changes to routines or preparation or getting guys ramped up for spring training that could be a, a response to that? I know each of the last couple of years, they sort of have made tweaks and additions to their to beef up their training staff and strength staff and I know some of the individual pitchers have attempted to try their own methods to try to stay healthy. I know Tyler Skaggs started started taking up yoga this year. It's not for an arm injury he suffered last year, but just to try to prevent potential future injury by altering his body. Other than that, I think they're just I don't know, maybe Doug White can bring something in his first year as pitching coach after coming from the Astros, but there hasn't been anything necessarily that's been notably different about sort of their throwing routines or how they're going to utilize their pitchers. I think a lot of that's going to sort of be unfold as the season sort of unfolds and see how Brad Osmus chooses to deploy his pitchers and his relief pitchers. But they've, they've added more depth to at least maybe be able to absorb those kind of injuries as opposed to having guys who like Ojasamber Despagne last year was starting games in September. Now they have guys like J.C. Ramirez coming back from a Tommy John surgery or a Dylan Peters, guys who, who have maybe a little bit higher upside who can be your ninth, tenth starters as opposed to guys who you just picked up off waivers. Were you surprised that not only last offseason, but maybe more specifically this offseason, the Angels didn't make a play for Mike Moustakas or a comparable corner infielder? Because not only do they have, they had Zach Kozart last year, they have Zach Kozart now, but Kozart is coming off injury and they have a very unproven entity at second base in, in David Fletcher. So were you surprised? Uh, a little bit. I think more than anything, the part about New Stockets, I think, made a lot of sense for the Angels was not necessarily they played a corner, but also just that he was a left-handed power bat, and they really could use that. But they went and got that, and Justin Bohr pretty like pretty early in the offseason is during one of the meetings. And I guess they, they feel really high about a lot of the middle infield prospects that they have coming up, like David Fletcher and also uh, Luis Rangifo, who they got last year in the C.J. Crone trade and wound up really escalating a lot of levels in the minor leagues and showing a good eye. I, I they feel, I guess, pretty good about where Zach Cozart is health-wise. Uh, Cozart talked about how he discovered something in his swing in 2017 when he was obviously an all-star daddy that he didn't have last season. And he already sort of feels better with how he handled it. And also that injury he had last season was something he's been dealing with for a decade now, where his left shoulder sort of kept flipping out of socket and then progressively got worse and worse up until they need, I think, nine acre anchors to sort of tie down that shoulder together in surgery. So I think they feel good about where Cozart is health-wise, and I think they feel good about where Fletcher and Ringifo can possibly fill in, in addition to Taylor Ward possibly at third base if they move Cozart to second. We should talk about the manager who's going to be positioning all these players. Brad Osmus is now managing the Angels after an epic of Mike Sosha managing this team 
Can you give us a a glimpse into maybe how that has changed the atmosphere at all at Angels Camp or how it's changed sort of the way the team is run day to day or any insight into why they went with Osmus, which I think was sort of surprising at the time because, you know, they went from one sort of old school former catcher to another and Osmus hasn't really been perceived as a, a particularly analytically inclined guy. I know that he and Billy Epler had worked together and had a a relationship from last year. But what motivated that hiring and how, if anything, have things changed? I think as far as things things have changed, you can obviously tell it's it's different. It's it's been 20 years with someone doing it sort of his way, and now it's all of a sudden New Boston Town. So you sort of see uh, everything's a little bit different, but most major league camps are really the same. But as far as players, they've sort of noticed that just He's maybe a little bit more hands-on. He's caught a couple of bullpens actually already, and he it sort of feel feels like there's more more of an in sync sort of deal with the front office and what Billy Epler wants. It feels like it's more easily translatable. And I think part of it's also because, like you mentioned, Osmus was part of that front office last season. And that's a big part of why a lot of the big candidates they brought in, Osmus and Eric Chavez. Josh Paul, these were people that were brought in by Billy Epler who were in the organization last year to try to make this a smooth transition because it, it, it can never be that smooth of a transition when a guy's been there for a generation, but that, that they're trying to make it as smooth as possible. And it seems like things have been business as usual, but at least it seems like there's more of an emphasis on technology, on data, analytics. They have electronic cameras. They have sort of Rapsoda devices, they have all kinds of sort of advanced ideas. And I think Brad Ostmus has tried to be more receptive than he was in Detroit to some of to actually implementing some of those. He tried to at least when he was first introduced, he tried talking about his background at Dartmouth, how he loved using numbers as a catcher, but now he sort of has more of an understanding on how it all can be implemented in a game situation. I think that's some of the things that he said he's learned, and I think we'll see once the games actually start how much of that has been progressing over the last few years. I understand that it's still so early. You mentioned Brad Osmus had been in the Angels front office before taking over as as their manager, and now he is clearly a guy who has previous playing experience and previous managing experience. But have you sensed anything uh, with regard to the player's receptivity to having someone who was just in the front office now taking over at the roster in the dugout? Because ordinarily, you uh, you think as a player, you're looking for more of a divide there, and, and now it might be easy to look at Osmus and think, well, this guy's a little too close to the bosses upstairs. Uh, I think... At least for, I, I know at least one player in that clubhouse, Justin Upson, actually had Brad when he was in Detroit. And I think it'll be interesting to see like, what the difference is in Austin's in Detroit versus Austin's with the Angels. But it seems like, while obviously Austin's and Billy Apple are really close, they're in each other's ear, it seems like at least as camp has sort of begun, Billy has sort of, it's been sort of a watch from afar approach. He hasn't necessarily trying to have his hand in every single thing that Osmos has done. And I think they've tried to sort of avoid that issue where it seems like every word is directly coming from Billy Epler and every instruction, every drill is sort of his idea. I think Osmos has been given a decent amount of autonomy to sort of run camp his way. He sort of tried to be involved, try to show the former player side of himself while also now when he's talking and able to actually look at bigger picture ideas 
look at some of the new things he's been able to learn under Billy Epler. The Angels were not particularly active this offseason, but one move they did make was signing Jonathan Lucroy. We've talked about Lucroy a fair amount on this podcast. I think Jeff and I have both written about him and his fall from MVP caliber player to seemingly replacement level player at this point. There's been an offensive decline, but there's also been a pretty notable decline behind the plate, too, it seems. Do you know whether the Angels have any theories about what has happened to Lucroy or whether they have any hope that he can regain some of that former productivity? I, I know that Jose Molina went from being a, a minor league catching coordinator to now the major league catching coach. And that is kind of an interesting pairing of two guys who've been the faces of framing for the past several years. So I wonder whether there's anything Molina can do when working with Lucroy? Yeah, at least offensively, uh, Billy Upton noted that his exit velocity actually went up last year after being like trending backwards. So I think they feel that maybe last year's offensive struggles may have been slightly more bad at ball luck, but they feel like he still has some juice left in his bat and that he can sort of rebound at least a little bit. But defensively, of course, they really liked what they heard in terms of his Game calling is able to interact with pitchers. Some of the things that they really haven't been able to calculate, but they were tried to scout otherwise. But as far as framing specifically, yeah, that was one of the first things that Luke Roy actually did was when he first started talking to Billy Upler, he scheduled an interview actually between Brad Austin, Josh Paul, and Jose Molina, so three former big league catchers, and sort of just broke down what they wanted to see out of Luke Roy uh, what kind of changes that could make to bring him back to the framing level that he was in his peak when he was with the first. Last year, Ben had some fun writing an article about Cole Calhoun, who started out absolutely dreadful. He was probably the worst hitter in baseball for a little over a month. He went on the disabled list. He came back. He had some mechanical changes, and he was then the hottest hitter in baseball for, I think, a little over a month. And then, as I look at Cole Calhoun's 2018 splits, I look at the month of September and his WRC Plus dropped to 46, which is, of course, less than half as good as league average. So it was an extremely volatile Cole Calhoun season in 2018. And while Cole Calhoun is not the best player on the Angels, not even one of the five best players on the Angels, he is important. He is still a starter. You were watching Cole Calhoun up close and personal. You saw him at the beginning, you saw him in the middle, you saw him at the end. What was the real story of Cole Calhoun's 2018 and how much are the Angels expecting out of him now moving forward as one of their uh, one of the players who's locked up? It seemed like last season he came into it as sort of, I guess, a, a victim of the launch angle revolution because he sort of went about it the wrong way. He sort of wanted to hit more fly balls without knowing really how to approach hitting more fly balls. So he found himself pulling off the ball, not really hitting the ball hard. He had a lot more fly balls because he was popping balls up and, and not really going about it with actual like sort of proper training. So what happened is he got hurt. That gave him a chance to sort of get a refresh, go down to the minor leagues. And Sean Wooten, who was then the minor league hitting coordinator, and now as the assistant hitting coach, sort of went through his swing, went through what the proper start position would be for him to be able to put ball in the air more, but also put the ball in the air with actual exit velocity behind it, with actual force behind it. And that sort of just became his stance. Now that little crouch stance that looks a little bit awkward when you're at the play, that's, that's just where he wants to wind up at when he actually is hitting the ball. So he's starting out there. 
And I think that really worked for him for a long time. It uh, worked for him for a couple months. And like you mentioned, he was one of the best hitters in baseball. And I think he kind of just hit a little bit of a slump at the end. Yeah. I don't think there's anything notable that changed his batted ball profile over that last month. I think it was more just batted ball luck. I think he's coming to the spring with sort of that same batting stance. I think he feels like those changes he made with Wooten are something he can keep up going into 2019. And I know the Angels are really hopeful with that. I know they feel like they're pretty set in the outfield right now. If they can manage to have Calhoun, Trout, and Upton together, Joe Adele, the Cubs' top prospect, could make it to the big leagues by the end of the season, although that might be a little bit rushed. He's only 19 right now. But if they do feel like Adele is ready, he, he will push uh, Cole Calhoun. I know the Angels, obviously, who extended him to a team-friendly contract a few years back, they, they did try to move him this offseason. I know $10.5 million is a decent amount of what the Angels' payroll is. So he's something, someone that the Angels are really hoping performs, whether as a trade asset or someone who can help them get to the postseason. Yeah, tell us a little bit about Adele since you mentioned him and, and since I know you wrote a, a feature about him not long ago and you mentioned on Twitter that he was hitting in a batting group in batting practice with Mike Trout and Albert Pujols. <laughs> it's a, a good group of players. And I wonder what it's like to be a, a center fielder who is also a top prospect in an organization that also has Mike Trout. But he is, I think, baseball prospectus had him as, what, the number two prospect in baseball this year? And Baseball America had him at number six. He's up there. Yeah, he, he's very highly regarded. And he's a face for what this Angels farm system has become in the last couple of years. They've really been able to take a farm system. I think Keith lost it was one of the worst he had ever seen a few years back to one that's respectable now. And I know that Billy Epler has said he wants that farm system to be top five in baseball for years to come. And Adele is a big reason why they feel like they can succeed. He's really been able to go through the system really fast. He went from low A all the way up to double A last season. And had he not had a thumb injury, when he first got to double A, could have even made it up to triple A Salt Lake by the end of the season. He, he's a big power hitter. He's got had some swing and miss early on. Uh, in his minor league career, but it seems like he's found a way to harness uh, some of that bat speed in a way that can sort of do damage without swinging and missing as much as he was. But he's a guy who's really athletic, power hitter. He, he projects really highly. I know the Angels sort of view him as a franchise player, and, and they want him up the sooner the better. And they have him sort of training in a corner outfield spot just in case. If he's really played himself to be major league ready, he could potentially help them for a postseason run if they're in the hunt. And he could be a right fielder, left fielder, a guy who can sort of help join that core, that nucleus, and really be that piece that helps put the Angels over the top. One of the areas where I think Billy Epler has had a philosophy that seems to be pretty well publicly known is that he's not a believer in paying a lot of money for relief pitchers. Now, I don't know how... Hard and fast and true, he stays to that philosophy, but at least it was true coming into the season 2019. The Angels did add Cody Allen to the top of their bullpen, which, depending on who you ask, could be a positive or a negative. That depends on how much he gets his curveball back. But regardless, the Angels are a team that is seems to be looking forward to wildcard push, and they did work to make their, their roster a little better. But they're going to have a new manager, and they're going to have a bullpen that has an awful lot to prove. And you know, there's nothing that makes a new manager 
look worse, feel worse than a bullpen you can't rely on. So what is the upside in this group of Angels relievers, and what do you think is going to shake out to be their, their most regular used, like, top seven over the course of the season? Uh, I mean, Billy Upbrook certainly has a type when it comes to relievers. He likes guys who don't give up home runs and who throw hard. And that's sort of what he's tried to build around. I know Cody Allen actually had a lot of issues giving up home runs last season, but they have a lot of young arms that sort of have a chance to prove themselves. They feel good about some of the changes Hansel Robles made because he was a guy who they claimed off the waivers from the Mets for nothing. And by the end of the season, he was throwing 101 miles an hour. They have Keenan Middleton coming back from Tommy John surgery. And he was a guy who seemed like he would be the club's closer of the future uh, before he got hurt. And Ty Buttery has actually been a guy who's done really well after get, being acquired at the deadline as sort of a quiet Red Sox prospect for Ian Kinsler. So they, that's probably their three best relievers when all healthy. And if they can manage to add a couple pieces here and there, they have obviously a couple veterans, Daniel Hudson and Dan Jennings. I think they have the makings of what could be a pretty solid bullpen if a couple of those young guys continue to show what they've been able to show in their short sample size in the big league so far. So Shohei Otani is technically not a two-way player for 2019, but the Angels do have a two-way player in camp, Jared Walsh. Tell us about Walsh and also tell us about the Angels' general receptivity to two-way players. They had Caleb Cowart doing the two-way thing in the minors last year before he got claimed on waivers this winter. So has their expertise that they've developed in handling Otani and just Otani's success made them more open-minded, at least when it comes to this concept? Jared Walsh, he's a funny case because he actually... It seemed like out of college, he was going to be a better pitching prospect than a hitting prospect, but he had some injury issues, and that sort of dropped him to the 39th round of the draft, and he sort of built himself up from there. Uh, he hit really well, and is one of those quiet prospects who just continued to put up good numbers, so they kept moving him up. And last year at Salt Lake, he was one of the better hitters the team had, and whenever they would get into blowouts or games into extra innings, he became the arm they would just rely on, and then... Uh, a couple of the Angels front office members really liked his stuff. He liked fastball. I can get to 91 to 92 miles an hour and had a good curveball and a changeup. And so they thought, uh, why not let him try to work as a pitcher in instructional leagues? If they have something there, they really liked that. So they gave him the opportunity to sort of try out both this spring. And, and like, yeah, like you said, the Angels have been pretty receptive to it. I don't know if Caleb Cowart is a similar situation to Jared Walsh, mostly because Towers more the mold of a former top prospect who really couldn't put it together at the plate. Uh, went through several swing changes that never really panned out for him. So they thought, all right, he doesn't have any options. Let's try to see if we can make him into a pitcher, which he used to be in high school, and see if they can make it work. And when they tried sneaking him down, uh, he got claimed by the Mariners and then again by the Tigers. But it, it didn't really work out. But the Angels overall have been pretty receptive to the two-way player idea. I know they actually drafted a two-way player last year in the fifth round, William English, who they're going to try as an outfielder and a right-handed pitcher. But other than Otani, English is the only one of those who's really been a starting pitcher. So I think that's sort of what they're going to use that Otani model for. As far as Jared Walsh, I think they see as more of a bring to develop you as a hitter, but also if we need pitching, or especially relief pitching, he could be a lefty specialist or a guy who could come in and face one batter or a few batters as a reliever. If you look at the Angels' depth chart, you'll uh, you'll see a familiar name in their starting rotation. Of course, they're they're going to lean on Andrew Haney, going to lean on Tyler Skaggs. 
Matt Harvey is just hanging out there somewhere in the middle toward the back of their rotation, depending on how it shakes out. Of course, Harvey is coming off of 2018, where at least based on the narrative, he got out of New York and he was able to rebound a little bit in a small market like Cincinnati's numbers weren't actually great. Here he is, just another guy in the Angels rotation that's hoping to be good enough to help the team stay afloat. So what are the expectations right now for Matt Harvey moving forward? I know that his stuff did play up with Cincinnati down the stretch last season, but still, it was a far cry from what he had used to be. What makes the Angels optimistic if they are optimistic? Uh, I think they looked at a lot of, because obviously Matt Harvey always had good velocity on his fastball, and although I, while that deteriorated a little bit, it sort of bounced back a little bit, but they also looked really like the spin rate on his slider and his curveball. And he, I know he sort of made some tweaks down the stretch, especially in September last year, Cincinnati getting a chance to pitch every five days and sort of try things with more regularity. And I think they like a lot of what he can bring with his pitch mix overall and feel like he could possibly evolve more as a pitcher. And while he may, they don't expect him to be Matt Harvey old, they probably want to see whether or not those changes are sustainable in a lower pressure environment. I know they're relying more on Skaggs and he needs to sort of lead that rotation, but if they can have a healthy Matt Harvey for 30 or so starts, I feel like they feel like Matt Harvey can sort of tap at least a little bit into what made him so great before. And I, Matt Harvey, when he talked, I think it was last week about some of the changes he made in Cincinnati, I think the biggest thing he said was realizing that younger pitchers now are coming to him for advice. So he wants to, be more of an example that he wishes he had when he first came up. Uh, we'll see if those changes are actually there to stay, but it seems like he sort of has come in with a, a little bit of a different attitude towards trying to be more consistent with how he works between outings and the example he could set overall. I probably watched more Angels regular season baseball last year than I watched any other team just because of that incredibly compelling trio of Otani, Trout, and Andrelton Simmons, who also had a fantastic season. Obviously, Otani is not quite as compelling if he is just a hitter. On the other hand, he may be an everyday player when he returns, which is nice. So there is a part of me, even though I don't have a traditional rooting interest for any team, I kind of just want to have an excuse to watch the Angels other than just those three guys. It would be kind of fun if those guys were actually in a playoff race or in the playoffs even. So give us your prediction for the Angels this year. Will they disappoint everyone again and somehow build a team around Mike Trout that is not playoff caliber? Or do you think they might actually get him back to October this time around? Um, I think I think they've made incremental improvements over the last year. And last year they managed to get to 80 wins, even with losing. I, think, I don't think they had a single starting pitcher go wire to wire last year. So I think there definitely is room for improvement. I think that AL West is down, so that helps the Angels. Uh, I'd say I've seen, I see them as about a 500 team, but within down division with some slight improvements, I'll say about 83 wins. All right. Well, that's good enough to contend, I guess, and give me an excuse to, to tune in to see Otani every day. Not that I need one. All right. You can follow Fabian on Twitter at his name, Fabian Ardaya. You can read him on both the Angels and the Dodgers at The Athletic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we will be right back with Fabian's colleague at The Athletic, Robert Murray, to talk about the Brewers. Why Milwaukee? Why not? Sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's hot. Sometimes it rains, sometimes it's dry. 
Sometimes there's rainbows in the sky. Why Milwaukee? Why not? All right, so we are now joined by Milwaukee Brewers beat writer and national MLB insider for The Athletic, Robert Murray. Welcome, Robert. Hey, thank you for having me. So the Brewers made some news very recently, signing Mike Moustakis. They, of course, also added Yasmani Grandal earlier this offseason. They have made a habit, seemingly, of waiting and pouncing when guys are available. They don't seem to give much indication before they make these moves. They haven't been preceded by weeks and weeks of rumors. They just seem to strike when they see an opportunity. So... Tell us to the extent you can about how those two contracts came together. Yeah, so the Brewers, as you said, they found an opportunity to take advantage of the market. And Yasmina Grandal was largely expected to get a four-year deal in about the 60 to $65 million range. And indeed, he did get an offer of that range, at least close to New York Mets, but he ended up turning it down because he didn't feel like the average annual value was to his caliber because he views himself in the Yadier Molina in the Buster Posey in, in that category. And that is exactly why he ended up signing a one-year $18.25 million deal in Milwaukee. And along with Moustakas, they basically found the same kind of thing there where his market wasn't exactly what he thought it was going to be. And both of them have one thing in common, is that they are left-handed power hitters. And Grandal, I should say, is a switch hitter, but primarily most of his, his action comes from the left side of the plate. And the Brewers know that left-handed hitting plays really well at Miller Park. And that is something that they have prioritized. Or I should I should say David Stearns, ever since he's come to Milwaukee, he's added Christian Yelich, he's added Travis Shaw too, and then he just added these guys as well. And he clearly sees a market there and something that plays well in Milwaukee, and he's taken advantage of that. So the Brewers, this offseason, as you were just talking about, the signing Mike Moustakis just very, very recently. But in the past few days, there's talk has emerged that Instead of doing the obvious thing and having Mike Moustakis play third base and moving Travis Shaw to second, the Brewers are looking to have Travis Shaw stay at third base and have Mike Moustakis at second base. So what can you do to explain their viewpoint on this maneuver? Yeah, so they view Travis Shaw as a gold glove caliber third baseman. And they are not wrong to think that. He was one of the runners up last year in the running for the gold glove in the National League. And they view Moustakis as a capable second baseman. They think he's athletic enough to do it. And they talked to him about it during or right after the trade last year and during the negotiation process this year. And it's something he's completely willing to do. And they're going to try it out in spring training here. They wanted to do that last year, but they ultimately didn't have enough time considering that they were in a playoff run. And now they're going to get a good up-close look at it. And there's a lot of optimism that he'll be able to make the transition pretty seamlessly. It's obviously going to come with some risks. He's Travis Shaw last year, he dealt with some issues of not being able to properly turn a double play or doing some other things too. And I'm sure Moustakas is going to run into some of those things as well. But I, I do think that come opening day and come most of the regular season, we're going to end up seeing Shaw at third and then Moustakas at second. I think that's going to be something you see pretty regularly. One player who is not new, he is the opposite of new, Ryan Braun. He has made some headlines for talking about a swing change or swing changes he has evidently made this winter. Can you tell us anything about what exactly he's done or, or what he's hoping it will accomplish? Yeah, he said uh, he's spoken about it multiple times this offseason. And he said this, the changes have specifically come to his bat path. He's a big believer in the launch angle revolution, as he likes to call it. 
And this is something that he's trying to do to take luck out of the equation. He's trying to hit more balls over the fence uh, just because he, at multiple times last year, called himself unlucky. And some of the data proves that he indeed was unlucky. So he ended up hiring a hitting coach this, this offseason, and they ended up working together. And he said you won't be able to notice the changes at all when he, when you're on the field or when he's on the field, but he's hoping that it ends up proving in the results and even in the home run numbers. At this point of his career, he's, he's basically he's not average, but he's slightly above that. And he's hoping that he can also stop the decline process at the same time. So I, I think he's going to end up seeing some results, but I don't think if if you want to be realistic, I don't think it's going to make that big of a difference. I think the player that I'm personally most interested in on these Brewers right now, and I think maybe the player that could make the biggest difference for the fate of their season is Jimmy Nelson, who in 2017 broke out, pitched like an unhittable ace until he injured his shoulder very badly, sliding back to a bag. He wound up missing all of 2018. He is supposedly good to go, throwing full strength in the bullpen right now. I know, of course, it's way too early, and no one really knows what Jimmy Nelson is going to look like against tough in-game competition, but what is the mood, I guess, around camp and around Jimmy Nelson? Where are the team's expectations? They Okay, so the word right now around Brewers camp is that they're going to be very patient with him, and they understand this is a 162-game season, and this has been repeated by Council and David Stearns at seemingly every point of the offseason, is that they do not want to rush him back. And they are they like what they see. They say that he's good to go, that he's ready to go. He's already, as you said, he's thrown in camp already. But they are afforded luxury right now of having seven or eight starters in their rotation, not even including Nelson. So if they, if they want to, they can be plenty patient and maybe ease him into action. They haven't really openly discussed that terms of not having them on the opening day roster, I do believe that it, it is a realistic possibility. But his goal was to start on opening day. And by all accounts, I do not believe that's going to happen. But I do think he's going to make it a pretty big impact at some point of the season. I just don't know exactly when that will be. So sticking with the rotation, which was very much not the story of the 2018 Brewers, that was all about the bullpen. But this year, you do have potentially Nelson coming back. You have Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns maybe both being in the rotation. What are the hopes for some of these guys who had been in the bullpen now as they transition to starting roles? Does the team expect for this to be more of a traditional rotation-centric team that doesn't have to push its pen quite as hard as it did last year? Yeah, that's that's the thing with the Brewers right now is they they have the luxury of having a five-man rotation and then having three or two to three to four guys in the bullpen that can eat multiple innings. I don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but the one guy that you mentioned that I want to go in depth about is Corbin Burns. Mm -hmm. And that is a guy that the Brewers, everybody in the organization views him as a guy that can be a top of the rotation type player. And they even believe that can happen this year. There's a lot of belief that he'll be able to do that. His fastball slider combo last year was really good out of the bullpen. And this year he's expected to feature a changeup. That is like, I talked to the area scout that drafted him, Joe Graham, and he considered it a plus pitch when he was coming out of St. Mary's. And he's had time to groom that in the minor leagues with their pitching coach, Chris Hook, uh, who's now at the big league team. And there is just, there's a lot of optimism that he will be able to turn into a, a player that's a, a franchise cornerstone. 
And then you have Brandon Woodruff, too, who is very good. He's a guy that he's also young like Burns. They have slightly different pitching styles. He doesn't throw as hard as Burns does, but he's another guy that the Brewers are really high on. And I don't know if he'll be ever like get to the point of being as high of a prospect or high, as highly thought of as Burns, but the Brewers have plenty of optimism there with Brandon Woodruff. So one of the one of the, you mentioned Chris Hook in that answer, and Chris Hook is going to be the new pitching coach of the Brewers because over the offseason, one of the things that happened to the staff is that the Brewers lost a few coaches, and one of them was Derek Johnson, who left the team to go join the Reds, take over as their pitching coach. He is now reunited with Sonny Gray, who he had in college. So understanding, of course, that it's, again, very early in the process and that you could only know so much about Derek Johnson and about Chris Hook. Are there any concerns about sort of a, a lack of continuity here, or is Chris Hook just going to pick up exactly where Derek Johnson left off? Yeah, so I'm going to start off with Johnson and, and say that his departure was probably the biggest shock of the offseason for the Brewers. And seemingly nobody saw it coming from outside the organization, and even most people inside the organization didn't see it coming. But transitioning from Chris Hook, or transitioning to Chris Hook, I should say, it's he's not Derek Johnson. Uh, Johnson is probably one of the game's premier pitching coaches, but Chris Hook offers familiarity with a lot of the Brewers pitchers in the fact that he he spent at least a decade in the organization working with these guys, and he's got a lot of familiarity with Burns, with Freddie Peralta, with Woodruff, with with all of these guys, or with most of them at least. And it's going to take time for him to regain those relationships, just because it's been one to two to three years since he's worked with them. But Council has said multiple times that the transition so far, at least early on, has been really good. And the pitchers have said the same in clubhouse whenever we've talked to him. So Christian Yelich coming off an MVP season, the breakout that we were all waiting for, but it didn't exactly come in the way that we thought it might. He, of course, has had to answer innumerable launch angle questions over the years. Poor Christian Yelich, and every time he says he's not a launch angle guy and he hasn't made dramatic changes, and that is true, he's still a ground ball hitter, but clearly has made some more subtle changes and maybe is hitting the ball farther out front and lowered his ground ball rate a little bit as he went down the stretch and was just incredible. So it seems kind of like maybe that was about the best season you could possibly have for someone who's still hitting ground balls half the time. I don't know whether he has more minor adjustments in line, but is there a sense that that was the absolute ceiling and that you look at someone who had a a home run per fly ball rate as high as he did last year, what, 35%, and you think, well, there's no way anyone could keep that up long term. So is he someone where you would expect some regression, at least with the power, or are there more adjustments he can make to stay at that very lofty level? Yeah, so I, I was with you. I thought he was going to end up being a guy that, or I, I was thinking going into this off season that was probably the best we would see of Christian Yelich, and I, I think that most people would think that as well. However, the more people I talk to at Brewers Camp believe that they believe that Yelich has a shot to be better this year than he was last. They feel like last year he really he was in a place that he was set to succeed in Milwaukee. But he also grew into his body more. And you got to see this offseason. He added a lot more muscle to his body. He filled out his frame even even more. And I know that's probably going to fit into the best shape of his life narrative. And and I'm sure some people might roll their eyes at that. But there's a lot of people at Brewers Camp that believe 
that he has a shot to be a lot better this year or not a lot, but he has a shot to be better this year just because of the fact that he's won. This is his second year here. He's got more people in the lineup to protect him. And that's something that council really preached during the playoffs is when Ryan Braun was right behind him. They couldn't just avoid Yelich. They had to actually pitch to him to avoid hitting or to avoid throwing to Braun. And it just created a lot of matchups that the Brewers liked. I, I, I do think like when it's all said and done, I don't know if he'll be able to repeat his power numbers, but I do believe that his numbers have a shot like across the board to be as good, if not better than last year. Switching gears, going back to the pitching side, because I love talking about the pitching side. Somebody who came up and made an immediate difference was Freddie Peralta last season. And one of the things that I, I just love looking at, Freddie Peralta, he faced about as many righties as lefties. You probably already know these numbers, but right-handed batters hit Freddie Peralta. They slugged 188 and lefties slugged 489. Freddie Peralta had one of the largest platoon splits I think I've ever seen in my entire life. I was curious. Now, as the Brewers move forward, you said already that they have seven or eight starting pitcher candidates. Don't know how much they're going to be leaning on Jimmy Nelson. Peralta will just be part of the formula, but are, do you know if they're working on anything specifically with Freddie Peralta, his delivery, his repertoire, to try to improve him against opposite-handed hitters? Because clearly he's deceptive enough to get righties out almost all of the time. Yeah, they, they're working on, on some things with him, and I think they believe a lot of it will come with experience. But I, I do know that they've been working on some different things with, with Peralta. I just do not know the specifics. I'm, I'm trying to find those out as we speak. But another thing that they wanted to, to work on with him was the early innings in the games. In the first and the fourth innings, his ERA was in the 7-8 to eight range. In the other innings, it was in the 2-3 to three range. That is, If he's able to correct that along with command issues, I know he had a lot of walks, and he struggled with command in some games. I know his first outing in Colorado is his MLB debut. He struck out 12 or 13 batters and in five and two-thirds innings. If he's able to lock it in and if he's able to, to fix his issues against left-handed hitters, I think he has a shot to be one of the more talented guys in the Brewers' rotation. And it's it's shocking to me. Maybe not shocking is the right word, but knowing that the Brewers acquired him along with two other players from the Mariners in exchange for Adam Lind is probably one of the best moves of the David Stearns era. I don't, I don't think that's a move that gets credited enough. And I think after this year or even towards the middle point of the season, I think that's a move that, that people are really going to sit back and say, wow, Stearns, uh, he did extremely well with his deal. Yeah, and there are a number of deals like that. Obviously, we have pointed to the Kane and the Yelich and the Grandal, these you know, major moves and signings and celebrated the Brewers for doing that. But obviously, they've picked up a lot of under-the-radar guys and free talent, and they've had great depth the last couple of years. And that was kind of how they went from a rebuild to a playoff team with very little gap in between. They didn't bottom out the way that some of the other rebuilding or tanking teams have. So what is it, do you think, that enables them to find those undervalued talents at a time when it's really difficult to do that because there are a lot of smart front offices out there? Do you see it as more of a strength in evaluation and analysis, or is it more of a developmental strength where they're getting guys and actually making them better? Yeah, that's that is. I think the answer to that is both. They have a front office that they've they've added some top tier talent to that front office. They have Matt Arnold, he's David Stearns' right hand man, and he's the assistant GM. Um, they have Ray Montgomery, they have Tom Flanagan, they have Matt Klein. They have all these guys and a lot of them, all of them, I should say, are highly respected evaluators. And 
that's something that Stearns has preached ever since he's come to Milwaukee is, is having people around him that will challenge him and challenge his thinking and allow you to think in a different way that you didn't really believe or you didn't think was possible. And that's been a huge key for adding all the talent. And to go to the, the player development side, they have significantly improved their ability to build pitching in the in the minor league system and that's something that they struggle with for the longest time but now we're starting to see these guys as we mentioned before Peralta, Burns, Woodruff and all of all of these guys they have they're on the verge of maximizing their talent they have the little things to tweak little things to fix at Peralta probably more so than than Woodruff and Burns but they've significantly improved there and it's with Chris Hook it's with Derek Johnson and I, I should say that their ability to to make flies or make changes on the fly last year during the regular season, like uh, on the pitching staff with how they controlled it, how they controlled everybody with Jonathan was, was incredible. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest issues or one of the biggest questions heading into this season is will they be able to do that just because Johnson was in it, just, he was huge with their postseason strategy. So uh, if there's ever one concern I have with their ability to maximize their talent this year, maybe, it is that point, or is that part of the transition from Johnson to Hook? In the span of a, a couple of weeks, this uh, this past December and January, the Brewers traded away two outfielders who were out of options, didn't seem to really fit, and Keon Broxton, who I have liked a lot in the past, and also Domingo Santana, who I have liked a lot in the past. Now, neither one of those moves is likely to have a, a dramatic impact on the 2019 Brewers. Their outfield, as mentioned, is already pretty full, but at least, especially in the case of Santana, were you surprised to see that move, see what they got, and, and maybe more to the point, what do you think happened to Santana in 2018, considering it seems like his entire skill set remained intact from what looked like a breakout season before? Both of those trades, I, I don't think necessarily came as a surprise, but I thought the lack of a return for Santana kind of caught my eye a little bit. I know they, the key part of the deal was Ben Gamble, and that's a player that the Brewers like, and they, they had his older brother, uh, Matt, in the organization previously, so there is some familiarity there. But I, I was I was surprised that they they ended up getting that little for Santana and Santana's struggles last year were largely because I believe he wasn't getting consistent playing time and a year before or two years ago he was basically playing almost every day and we got to see him get into a rhythm and we got to see him flourish at the plate and then last year at the beginning of the year he was basically their fourth outfielder he was getting minimal at bats. And his struggles at the plate were were noteworthy. And by the end of the season, like towards the middle of the season, I I don't want to forget this part. He was sent down to the minors, and he was down there for a good chunk of time. And they ended up having him work on uh, different things with his swing. And when he came back, he he really didn't have a starting role, considering that their outfield, as we've mentioned, is is loaded. But he did carve out a role as a pinch hitter, and he was a valuable player off the bench. He was hitting home runs and. He got into a, a solid groove towards the, the second half of the season, and entering the playoffs, he was he was also very good. So it was a bit of a surprise that they got as little as they did. But I've I've learned at this point that doubting David Stearns probably isn't the best move. But I I do have some questions with this one. Josh Hader was so overpowering all of last season, but particularly in the playoffs when we talked about him, he was just like the Brewers' bullpen poochie where when he wasn't on the screen, everyone was asking, where's Hader and when is Hader coming in? 
I wonder, because we've talked about all these potential improvements in the starting rotation and the fact that the Brewers will not have to rely quite as heavily on the bullpen as they did last year, do you expect Hayter to end up in a more conventional role where he'll come in for an inning at a time and maybe it'll tend to be the same inning? Or do you think the fact that he demonstrated he could do that and was so valuable in a more multi-inning and, and coming in all the time role, will that be his permanent role? Will he stick in that role this season and beyond? Yeah, so I do believe he's going to end up having the same role as last year. And that role last year, as, as you said, was was multiple innings. He was in there for two innings. He was in there for, I believe, three innings, two or three times during the season. And there was at one point he ended up striking out, I believe, eight or nine of those hitters in, mm-hmm. in those three innings, which is obviously extremely impressive. But I, I do believe that this year his role is going to largely remain the same. And it's at the point now where I, I do believe that they have the luxury of, of keeping him in that role just because they have those sheer numbers in the bullpen with Jeremy Jeffress and Corey Knabel. They preach numbers in the bullpen. It's anytime, anywhere, anybody. With all these guys, they're able to do that, but Hader is obviously the key cog to that bullpen just because of how good he is and how dominant he is with, with his fastball and his slatter combo. His, his fastball was a pitch that they ended up using a lot last year just because, well, he ended up using a lot last year just because nobody could seemingly catch up to it just because of his unconventional arm slot and his, his velocity. So I do believe his role is going to end up staying the same. I think he's going to be effective. If, is he going to be as effective as last year? I don't know about that just because I think his numbers last year were very, I don't know if they were repetitive. So that's going to be my one really big question with, with Hayter is can he, can he repeat it? The Brewers had a whole successful campaign last year to get Jesus Aguilar into the All-Star game. And it was funny. I remember before the year, it seemed like Aguilar didn't have a place on the team. And then if you look at what he did in the first half of the season, Aguilar slugged 621. He had a 995 OPS. And then in the second half of the season, he faded and he wound up with an OPS of 760. Now, the reason I bring this up is if you look over at Eric Thames, who remains on the roster last April, this is long forgotten now, but... April, before Thames injured his thumb, small sample, but he had a 976 OPS. He was a fantastic hitter, and then he just struggled the rest of the way, fighting a lot of injuries. So going into the season, seems like Aguilar is going to be the starter. Seems like Thames might be out of a job, but of course, a year ago, things seemed reversed. So what is the belief level around Jesus Aguilar, and what is Eric Thames' job security? Yeah, so Aguilar, I would say his first half of the season last year was probably one of the most surprising developments of the entire year just considering that he was seemingly not many people were familiar with. And then he busted onto the scene with almost 25 home runs in the first half of the year. He was an all-star. Do I believe that he can repeat that? And do the Brewers believe that? I honestly don't believe so just because I think that's completely that. I don't, I don't think that's a realistic number for him to maintain. And if, if you expected him to do so, I think, I don't know if that would necessarily be the most responsible thing, but he's going to enter this season as the Brewers' top option at first base. And he's going to end up seeing the majority of the time there. The other option, as you mentioned, is Eric Thames. And Thames is probably not going to play much, if at all. But Thames is valuable in the fact that he's a left-handed bat and Aguilar is right-handed. So it allows them to play the matchup game if they find a matchup that they like against an opposing starting pitcher. There was a belief that after the Moustaka signing that they would have to trade Thames just to clear a little salary because his salary is in the six to seven million dollar range. 
But Stern said today that he is not in a position to trade Thames because they do not need to clear salary. The Brewers at this point are going all in on this season and they are embracing expectations of those kind of, of that the signings of both Mustakas and Grandal bring. So I, I think that at the end of the day, Aguilar is going to end up seeing the most time there uh, at first base, but Thames should sprinkle in every now and then. But I do believe that Thames is going to end up being a town come opening day. I think we've talked about every member of the lineup except one, so I will close with a a question about the one we have not talked about. There's a reason why he's the last one we're getting to, but Orlando Arcia, I think, is sort of a a low-key fascinating figure because he obviously was a, a top 10 prospect in baseball. Then he did pretty well in his first full season in the majors. Last year in the regular season was just a disaster, 55 WRC+. Then he turned into a monster in the playoffs. And he's, of course, been an above-average defensive shortstop the whole time. And he's just 24. So what is the expectation for Arcia? Is he still seen as the shortstop of the future? Is there still a belief that he can hit over a full season? Or has the luster faded a little bit? Yeah, so his defense, and that's exactly why the Brewers remain so high on him, is the fact that he's one of the game's best defensive shortstops in all of baseball. and his numbers there are as good as anyone's but his offensive numbers are what levels him out with the rest of the competition and brings him to the middle of the pack if not a little bit lower his offensive production last year at the beginning of the year was poor enough that it resulted in a demotion to triple a and even in triple a he was striking out a bunch he just could not find it but he eventually after about two or so months was called back up to the big leagues and after a while he, he the struggles continued, but towards about game 163 in Chicago, things changed for him, and he was becoming more confident at the plate. He was actually looking like a hitter that belonged. And earlier in the season, his swing was so inconsistent that there was times he'd even fall down while he was swinging. And he was able to repeat in the playoffs a consistent swing that was well balanced, and and everything was just working for him. And he was he was actually showed signs of the player that the Brewers were so high on at one point in time but from the offensive side but in the offseason they ended up losing another coach darnell colzer hitting coach he ended up going to the arizona diamondbacks in a lateral move and now they have andy haynes who they brought in from the chicago cubs in town and that is going to be i think huge for arcia just because he connected so well with coles and he ended up he credited a lot of his rejuvenation towards the end of the season because of Coles and a conversation that he had with Christian Yelich. So whether or not he's going to be able to like repeat the numbers that he had towards the end of the last season uh, into this season, I think that's a huge question for him. I don't know necessarily if it's realistic for him to repeat those numbers, but I think something in between this first half production and his postseason production is what we're probably going to end up getting from him. All right, so we always end by demanding a win total prediction from our guest. This is a year when the Brewers are expected to be good, so they're not going to surprise anyone if they are good. And, of course, the division is extremely competitive, so it's not going to be a cakewalk for anyone. So what is your expectation for the 2019 Brewers? Yeah, this is a number that I've I've been trying to figure out. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with 91 wins. I think 91 is is a solid number. I know that's not as many as last year, but I do think that will will be more than enough to uh, win the NL Central for him. 
All right. So you can find Robert on Twitter at by Robert Murray. You can, of course, also find him writing about the Brewers and baseball at The Athletic. Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, that'll do it for today. Two more quick things about Machado, by the way. I meant to mention this to Jeff, but we had so much to talk about. This is one of my favorite non-revelatory or revelatory tweets of this winter from Brian Hawk, Yankees beat writer for MLB.com. Dellen Batansis said he texted Manny Machado to congratulate him on his new deal. He got a reply. Thanks. <laughs> that was the entire tweet. I don't know if there's some subtext there, but sure, why wouldn't he say thanks? Seems like a polite and predictable response. Not sure if that's newsworthy, but as I speak, it has about 250 retweets and about 2,500 likes, so I can never predict a tweet's success. The other thing I meant to mention is that lots of people are calling this the biggest free agent contract in baseball history or in the history of North American sports, which is true technically in raw dollars. I think we even called it that in our intro. But of course, that's only true if you pretend that the dollar has been worth the same amount forever. So I don't think it's the largest inflation-adjusted free agent contract. Certainly the $252 million A-Rod deal that he signed back in 2000 would be bigger in present-day dollars. Anyway, just an annoying, niggling little thing that I notice every time I see it. Oh, and I think we mentioned that Padres fans had to be happy about the Machado signing. Yeah, they seem pretty delirious. I will link to a fun thread that was posted in our Facebook group of Padres fans on Twitter shotgunning beers and taking shots to celebrate Machado signing. It's nice. I think this contract obviously is not a panacea, but it is sort of a temporary antidote to a lot of the negativity that has surrounded the conversation about baseball this winter. On a sadder note, we didn't get to talk about this earlier in the episode, and unfortunately it was to some extent overshadowed by the Machado news, but Don Newcomb died on Tuesday, Hall of Famer. I don't really feel more qualified to eulogize Don Newcomb than I did Frank Robinson, but I did want to acknowledge his passing. He was a trailblazer, one of the first African-American pitchers at a time when the game was probably extra prejudiced against black pitchers. He won the World Series in 1955. He's the Rookie of the Year in 1949. He won the Cy Young Award in 1956. He was the first Cy Young Award winner. His major league career was somewhat shortened because he started in the Negro Leagues and then he missed a couple years while he was serving in the military during the Korean War. But he was still a legendary Dodger, very much respected, an integral integration figure, just like Frank Robinson was. And of course, Newcomb is one of the best hitting pitchers of all time. Good base runner too. But if you go to Fangraphs, you'll see he has eight points. were as a hitter, which is eighth all-time for a primary pitcher. He's also eighth all-time in WRC Plus for a primary pitcher with at least 500 plate appearances at 87. So he could contribute in a lot of ways. And as I saw Kevin Goldstein note on Twitter, I'll quote, there are a lot of things that made Don Newcomb awesome, but my favorite baseball thing is probably him going to Japan at 36 as an outfielder and slugging 473 for Junichi. So Nuke lived a great life and a long life, 92 years, but he will be missed. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already pledged their support. Daniel Brennan, James Rosenheim, Daniel Wilson, John Gowell, and Jonathan Hogden. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Also at 
the end of the last couple episodes, I have plugged a thread in our Facebook group in which listener Clay Dreslow, who is the developer of Baseball Mogul, is giving the game away for free until late March when the new edition of the game comes out. It's a simulation game that is very much up effectively wild listeners' alleys. There was a problem with the code that he had provided to get the game for free, and I messaged him about it, and that problem is now fixed. So if you tried and failed to get the game for free, go back and try it again. It should work now. And if you missed it, check it out. It's a cool offer for members of our Facebook group. So I'll provide the link in the show notes. Travis Sachik and I sent in our almost final revisions for our book, The MVP Machine, on Monday. We just have one more hurdle to clear, the final typeset proof, which will be sent to us at some point not too long, and then we'll give it one last reread, try to find the few typos that have slipped through, and then it will be locked and final, and we won't be able to change it until it's in your hands. So please do go pre-order it now, because those early pre-orders really help. They show the publisher that there's going to be interest in the book, and of course they increase our odds of getting on the bestseller list, which would be nice, because we appreciate it, and are grateful to those of you who have already signed up. We have another team preview podcast coming tomorrow. It will feature the Mets and Blue Jays if all goes as planned, so we will be back to talk to you then. 